Well, Lord, on uh, this Palm Sunday, we thank you and we're reminded of the kind of God that you are, that you are a Savior who came to serve, not to be served, that you came humbly riding on a donkey, that you gave yourself. But Lord, we're also reminded this morning that there is, even as we just sung, there's going to be a day where you come not on a donkey, but you come riding on a horse, and you will defeat all evil that stands before you. And so we anticipate that day, we, we look forward to it, and we praise you for it. It's in your son's name that we pray, amen. Well, as, uh, as I was thinking about this passage that I'll be teaching on this morning, I started to, to think about all of the incredible experiences that, uh, that we have in this life, all of the realities that we kind of encounter every, every single day, sort of these everyday experiences that we have, things that are very commonplace that we don't necessarily give a lot of thought to, and, and yet if we were to think very much about them, we'd really start to kind of be blown away at how amazing they really are. So just to give you kind of a few examples so you know what I'm, I'm talking about here, the sun in the sky. The sun is perfectly positioned in its distance from the earth. Maybe some of you are, are familiar with this already, but in case you don't know, the sun is about 93 million miles away from the surface of the earth, okay? So it's not necessarily close, um, but if that sun was moved just 1% closer to the earth's surface, so around a million miles closer, just 1%, that would actually make the earth uninhabitable. So, uh, you know, the poles would start to get too warm, the ice caps would melt, every, everything, the water would start to rise, uh, land would be covered by water now, there would be no place to live, all right? Very fragile kind of uh, a system that we have in place when we think about uh, the, the distance of the sun to the earth. And yet I'm guessing that probably not many of us think about that when we step outside and we see the sun rise and we see the sunset, we feel its, its warmth on our face. We're not thinking, wow, if that was just 1% closer, I would die, right? We're just, we're, we're walking around ignorantly, you know, just living our lives underneath the sun, not even thinking twice about it. But that's, that's incredible when you think about it, just how perfectly positioned the sun is and how perfectly positioned we are in our solar system. Here's another one. On a commercial flight, and some of you are already having anxiety, but on a commercial flight, a plane on average will travel 500 miles per hour. That's insane, right? And, and we don't really think about that uh, probably when we're taking off, when we're landing, when we're flying through the air, or maybe actually some of you are only thinking about that, and, and I'm giving you like PTSD now of like the latest or the last trip that you had. Uh, but that's, that's incredible to think about. We are 300,000 feet up in the air. We're flying 500 miles per hour in the sky, and yet we're doing that 
constantly. Thousands of planes in the sky a day, millions of people flying every single day. We're not giving a second thought to the fact of how fast we're going, how high up we are, and that's incredible. One last one. The human nose can detect one trillion different smells. Isn't that crazy? It's, it's crazy that there are that many smells, first of all. And it's also crazy <clears throat> that we can actually detect that many smells. And yet we probably don't ever really think about that. We just go through life smelling things, and we don't think about the level of capacity that our human bodies have to actually engage with the world around us. Now, here's why I bring those examples up this morning. As Christians, there are incredible experiences. There's incredible realities that are so constant in our lives, that are so familiar to us, that we can begin to actually see those realities and those experiences as completely ordinary. We take them for granted. And one of the biggest is really this, this amazing idea that as Christians, we have the privilege of calling the God of the universe our Father. I'm sure all of us are familiar with that concept, right? It's scattered throughout the New Testament. It's in our songs. It's, uh, it's in the, the confessions that we'll say sometimes on a Sunday morning. Uh, many of us probably even start our prayers very routinely with these words, God our Father, or, or just Father. That's our address to Him. And because it's so commonplace in our lives and in our language, some of us have made the mistake, including me, but some of us have made the mistake of thinking that it's ordinary rather than extraordinary. And so the, this morning, I want us to look at Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17 to consider what it actually means when we say, God is our Father. And as we do, let me just challenge all of us in the room this morning who are already very familiar with this idea, who, who maybe you won't learn anything new in terms of the reality that God is our Father, but I want to I challenge you not to assume that just because you're familiar with this idea that you have truly comprehended this idea. A phrase that I like to use with our students on Sunday nights is that familiarity does not equal understanding. So you may be very familiar with this idea, but I want to I kind of warn you, encourage you, and challenge you that just because you are familiar does not necessarily mean that you understand what it means that God is our Father. And so as we look at this passage, my hope is that, that you would meditate on this reality to the point that you wouldn't just know it to be true, that it wouldn't just be this kind of intellectual concept to you, but it, that you'd experience it to be true as well that you'd understand its significance. First, personally, just as a, as a follower of Christ that you would come to understand it, but even collectively, as a member of Christ's body, that you would understand the significance of this incredible doctrine that we have in the Christian life. With that in mind, then, let me just give you three implications to God being our Father if we are in Christ. Here's the first one. He's available. 
As our heavenly Father, God is available to us. So look at uh, verse 15 with me. It says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, there's been a lot of significance that's been placed on that word Abba over the years. Some people will say that uh, it's this very uh, informal and kind of intimate word similar to kind of our our modern day sort of dad or daddy. Uh, Others would say that it's a band from the 70s and 80s. In reality, though, Abba, I'm so proud of that joke. Uh, (laughs) Abba is just the Aramaic word for father. Okay, and it's throughout the years, it's just been transliterated. Even when we look at the Greek texts, they have transliterated that word and kept it in even English translations now. Okay, so if you, if you ever hear a friend start off their, their prayer with Daddy God, after you throw it because that's so cheesy, you can just graciously go up to them and say, hey, that's not actually, that's not really what that word Abba means. So if we're to literally translate that phrase, Abba, Father, what's actually being said is Father, Father, right? In other words, the significance of that word Abba is not necessarily in the meaning of the word itself. But what is significant is that it's the same term that's used by Christ when he prays to God in the Garden of Gethsemane. So we see that in Mark 14, 36. And you don't have to turn there, but that could be a helpful reference for you in the future because there's only a, a handful of times in the New Testament where we see that word show up. The first time is in Mark 14. So Jesus, when he's anticipating his crucifixion, he cries out to God in the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. So the reality that Paul is trying to sort of bring out for us in Romans 8, when he sort of adopts this word and and puts it into this letter to the Romans, is not necessarily that God is so approachable that he's, he's just like, you know, a daddy is to a little child. And in fact, I would say if we overemphasize that, that meaning of the word, then we could, we could actually start to slip into maybe the wrong side of this and we could, we could start to sort of give up the authority and the transcendence that God still has in our lives, even as our Father. Okay, so that's, that's not necessarily what Paul is trying to emphasize, but what he is trying to say is that the same intimacy which Christ shares with God the Father is also available to us. The way in which Christ could cry out to God and be fully honest and be fully heard is the same way in which we can cry out to God. And friends, that is amazing. That should not be taken for granted. It should make us pause and ask ourselves, is that the kind of intimacy that I am experiencing with God? Are my prayers coming from this this, uh, angle of God is my Father, I have 
intimacy with him just like Christ himself shares intimacy with God. And so I can be honest. I can, I can be so, so open with him and know that he hears me as a father hears his child. And the way this happens, Paul says, the way that God makes himself so available to us is through the Spirit. That's what verse 15 says. Paul says, You have received the Spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Paul makes an almost identical statement in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. And so, in that, uh, in that verse, again, he's making a very similar statement. The only difference is he then says that uh, it's the Spirit who cries, Abba, Father. So in Romans 8, we have it's the Spirit through whom we cry, Abba, Father. In Galatians 4, it's the Spirit who cries, Abba, Father. So who is it? Who is it that's doing the crying, basically, when we, when we look at these two passages and how they're kind of worded? Well, if we bring these two passages together, rather than trying to make them sort of compete with one another, I think that what we see is that experiencing God as our Father is a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but it's an active work, not passive. It's not that we just have the Holy Spirit inside of us chanting, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, over and over again, kind of in the background. It's that as the Spirit moves within us, as He fills us, as He dwells inside of us, the incredible level of intimacy and availability which God has offered to us as our Father becomes realized personally. It's, it's not that God just takes on the name of Father in that relationship. It's that we actually get to experience Him as Father in our lives each and every day. We actually get to call God our Father. And that word means something. In every sense of what that word means, that is our relationship to God. And the way Paul emphasizes that reality is by using this metaphor of adoption to describe the ministry of the Spirit in helping us experience God as our Father. Now, our church has been incredibly blessed by several families who have either adopted or they're interested in adoption. They're in the process of it. And for those of you who have already gone through that process of adoption, I'm sure you would agree that that when the judge finalized that adoption in the courtroom, the excitement and the joy that you experienced as a family wasn't rooted in the fact that now you took on the legal title of parent for your child. The excitement was not that there was now this term that was, that was attached to you and now that child had to call you mom or dad or mother or father. But the excitement was in the fact that there was now no kind of legal or technical barrier that would prevent you from expressing the full affection and love that you have felt for your child. You became available to them in every sense of the word. And that child didn't just get to call you mom or dad. They got to experience you now as mom and dad, 
all the care, all the affection, all the love that was associated with that word came with the title. And that child was now going to truly experience you as their mother and as their father. Friends, that is what it means that God has adopted us as his children. That's what it means that we can call him father. It's not just this title that now gets tacked onto God's name. It's an intimacy. It's an availability that we get to experience every single day from now until eternity. And the Spirit's presence bears witness to it. We have a home in God now because He has made His home in us. He's available to us in every sense of that word. And we should never take that for granted. Well, not only is God available to us, but second, as our Heavenly Father, God is generous to us. God is generous. So the first part of verse 17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So to really understand the significance of uh, what's being said here, we need to first understand that this title of father that God gives to himself is not just relational, but it's also covenantal. So the ones before whom God identifies himself as father are the ones with whom God also enters into covenant. So it's not, it's not just a matter of how does God relate to us, but it's also the level of commitment, the kind of commitment that God establishes in that relationship. It is a covenantal kind of commitment. So for example, in Isaiah 63, 16, it says, uh, Isaiah is kind of speaking about God's relationship to the chosen people of Israel. Isaiah says, for you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. The reason why that's important for us to understand is because with God's covenant also comes God's blessings. To be in covenant with God is to be the recipient of God's promises. And in the Old Testament, what that looked like is that when Abraham and God, or really when God established a covenant with Abraham is the best way to say it, when God established that covenant... He promised to Abraham and to his offspring an eternal inheritance. But as we step into the New Testament, and that idea kind of gets expounded on and, uh, and sort of revealed more and more to us, what we see when we read passages like Romans 4 and Galatians chapter 3 is that Christ is that offspring of Abraham to whom the inheritance was promised. And so all those who are in Christ then share in those promises. In other words, the generosity of the Father that is poured out onto Christ is then extended to all those who are now found to be in Christ. 
And so as we take all of that context and kind of bring it into our reading of Romans 8.17, what we see is two things. First, the Father's generosity is most fully experienced by receiving Him, not receiving things. So notice how the beginning of verse 17 is worded. It says that those who are children of God are heirs of God. In other words, those who are inheritors, those who are uh, inheriting God's promises, are literally inheriting God himself as their God. That is a promise that is given to us by God himself. And so how does God display his generosity toward us? First and foremost, by sharing himself with us. God is not the kind of father who makes the mistake of thinking that, that giving his child things is a fair trade-off to spending quality time with his children. He's not an absent father. He's the father that is always there, that's always present, who enters into the mess of our lives and says, I am here with you. I am here for you. And as his adopted children, we don't just inherit God's wealth, but we actually inherit God's presence, God himself, in our lives. We are heirs of God. But the second thing that we see in verse 17 is that God's generosity toward us is founded on who Christ is, not who you are. So not only are we heirs of God, but Paul goes on to say here that we are heirs with Christ. In other words, all the privileges that Christ experiences as the Son of God, all the riches that have been uh, lavished on Him are now available to us because of what He's done on the cross. When we're united with Christ, the inheritance that He has rightly earned, that does not rightly belong to us, it is now shared with us because of Christ's graciousness because of God's generosity in our lives. It's as if Jesus has saved us a, a spot in line to receive all the riches of God the Father. And it's because of him that we go from orphans and enemies of God to legitimate children of God whose names are now on the will. That means that even on your worst days, God's generosity is not going to take a hit in your lives because it was never dependent on you in the first place. Day after day, all your needs are met because you are a child of a generous father and his generosity is made possible through the perfect son, Jesus Christ. So just to review, because God is our father, he is available to us. He's generous to us. And then finally, he's intentional. As our heavenly father, God is intentional with us. So in that last half of verse 17, Paul qualifies the first half of that verse by saying uh, that we're heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 
Now, here's why that's important for us to understand. We tend to measure the quality and quantity of God's love for us by the amount of trials or pain in our lives. Okay, today life is very hard. Life is very difficult. I'm experiencing a lot of setbacks or a lot of trials or a lot of issues in my life. And maybe that means God doesn't love me as much today. Right? I mean, we maybe don't say that out loud, but that can be the kind of thinking that we start to adopt when we start experiencing hardship in our lives, that we start to use that as evidence that maybe God's love is absent or it's at least less in our lives than it was the days where we didn't have as many trials or issues. But the problem with that mentality is that it completely misunderstands what it means to be a sibling of Christ and to be a child of God. Because if we're united to Christ in the kingdom of God, then not only do we share in his inheritance, but Paul is sure to remind us that also means we share in his suffering. In other words, God is not a helicopter parent. I'm sure all of us are familiar with that term. Maybe some of you are even thinking of of someone, you know, that you know that would maybe be described uh, as a helicopter parent. But if you put sort of parenting styles on a spectrum, on one end, you'd probably have something like the absent parent who spends no time with their children, who seems to never be really available to their child. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, you'd probably have something like the helicopter parent who's maybe too available for their child. Right? They think that their entire purpose in life is to literally sometimes hover over their children and make sure that that child receives everything that they want, everything that they've ever desired, and that they would receive it without ever experiencing any kind of setbacks or failures in the process. And that is not the kind of parent that God is for his children. God allows suffering in our lives. God lets us experience setbacks and trials. And the reason we can know that that's true, while also confidently saying that God is a good father, is because he uses suffering intentionally and with purpose. It's not that God gets any kind of joy or pleasure in watching his children suffer. God is not some sadistic kind of father who, who, who tries to intentionally make his children hurt and get some kind of joy or excitement out of that. That is not what God does with suffering. But he does allow and use suffering in order to refine us and mold us more into the image of Christ. We suffer with him. Why? So that we may also be glorified with him. That means that if you, uh, if you are in Christ, whatever you're going through in your life right now has purpose and hope woven into it because God is an intentional father. And his ultimate concern is not your comfort. It's your holiness. It's looking more and more like the sinless Son of God. And holiness comes from the flames of trials. 
Suffering is not the absence of God's love and presence in our lives. It's the means by which we identify with him. It's the means by which we become more and more like the sinless son of God. And so as our heavenly father, God is intentional and he's using all the bad things in your life to bring more good. Well, with the last bit of time then, I want to I just kind of bring this down for us and, and bring it down into our lives because, again, I think this is something we're very familiar with. God being our Father um, is a very familiar doctrine to us. It's in our, it's in our uh, songs. It's in our prayers. But I want us to understand how it actually should be shaping our lives every single day. And so this morning, I want to just kind of speak to three different people who are, are here and who maybe need to remember what it means that God is a father to those who are in Christ. So first, to those who are fathers yourselves, it is not by accident that you share your title with God himself. He has established you. He has given you this role as an opportunity to reflect his image and character to your family. It's a high calling to which God has called you. And in many ways, you should feel the gravity of that every time that you are with your children, every time that you wake up and that you step into that role as dad. There is a gravity, there's a weight to that position. And so as you step into that role, look to the perfect model that has been given to you in God. He is every bit of what it means to be a good father, and he loves to be imitated. But with that and all the needs and hopes and wants that your children are going to experience in this life, rarely will you be able to actually fulfill them. You weren't created to be the number one dad no matter what your monk says. And your children will begin to see your shortcomings if they have not already. And so as their love and admiration for you grows in this life, make sure that they know of the real number one father, the one who has demonstrated a fatherly kind of love toward them that we could never come close to matching. He's the one they truly belong to. And he's the one who will give them eternal satisfaction. And lastly, when you fail, and you will fail at being a good father, remember that before God made you a father, he made you his child. He's not ashamed of you. He's not embarrassed by you. He's not surprised at your imperfection. He loves you. He's available to you. His grace is unending. And he offers us forgiveness 
when we seek it in repentance. And so my prayer for you, my challenge for you, is that you would let the Spirit be the force that empowers you in the high calling of fatherhood. Let your identity in Christ be what shapes your home and your relationships with your children. Second, to those with fathers. You have been blessed with a tangible example in your life of the kind of relationship God desires to have with you. It's a gift to have a man in your life who is a picture of God's care for you every single day. And so as you experience the love and acceptance and security that's found in your father, see that as an opportunity to remember the beauty and goodness of God. Honor your father. He's been sovereignly placed in your life. And thank God for the provision that he's demonstrated through that man. But then also be sure not to limit your understanding of God the father to the experience of your own father, no matter how good or bad he is. He'll never be the ultimate dad, and he isn't supposed to be. But he is a reflection and a sample of all the love and fulfillment that can be found in the God who created you. And then finally, to those who are fatherless. Maybe you've lost your father. Or even maybe your father is still alive, but but he's been neglectful or he's been abusive and you have no real relationship with him at all. And in fact, maybe when you even hear that word father, there is nothing good that would come to your mind. I want to encourage you this morning that if you continue to mourn the absence of a father in your life, if you continue to feel broken over the fact that you do not have what some others have in a father. It is not because something is wrong with you. It's because something is right with you. God has designed you. He has created you to be someone's child. And in Christ, you can be his. Listen, having a father who loves you is one of the greatest joys in the human experience. But it is only a glimpse of the full and perfect love that God the Father can give you. And so cling to him today. He has made himself available to you through the Spirit's adoption. He has generously offered you an inheritance as his child And he's intentionally using all the hard things in your life to mold you into the image of Christ. And so cry out to him today, Abba, Father, he hears you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that we can stand here today by the blood of Jesus Christ and that we can call you Father. Lord, I pray we wouldn't take that for granted. That we wouldn't see that as ordinary, 
but that we would realize that's extraordinary. What a gift that you've given us to make yourself so available, that you've been so generous with your time and your resources to us, that you are intentional in the way you use every single moment of our lives to care for us and to make us better, to make us look more and more like the sun. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be thankful for that, that we'd be transformed by that, that we would really, truly come to realize the significance of having you as our Father in our lives. It's it's in your Son's name that we pray these things. Amen. Well, if you would stand with me this morning, we're going to read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.